0: The grace and peace of the Lord be with you all. Good morning and welcome to the Ward Living Room. Originally, we'd been planning on having a a service this morning and broadcasting it on Facebook, but the news late yesterday changed all that, so we're doing things a, a little different. I had wanted to take just a few moments and share with you the story of how God has been leading me this week. Just for the record, I had written a, a great sermon for today. It was on Mark chapter 12, the the parable of the vineyard and the tenants who killed the owner of the vineyard's son. It was it was all about how we participate in systems of oppression and how God's judgment is upon us. At the end there was this fantastic turn towards grace and redemption. There would have been weeping in the aisles and confession of our sinful complicity in oppression, and then there would have been joyous celebration at the redemption that God provides. You all may have lifted me upon your shoulders as we paraded in song around the school. Just for the record, that's what I think every week and it is always a grave disappointment when it doesn't come to fruition. Anyway, it was a it was a good sermon. But I had this realization on Friday that that really materialized on Saturday, God's gentle hand upon my back. That's a that's a fine sermon, son. You even underlined it in crayon, extra special. But it's not the right sermon. Granted, it took a while for, for God's Spirit to impress that, because I'm, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. But, but then, of course, yesterday happened, and the closing came, and, and so now we're all separated. And so we're going to be doing things a, a little different. I've been haunted all week by our prayer time last Sunday, when Julie led us to reclaim the, the small moments. So maybe in this time when everything seems unsettled and strange, we can be reminded of what is true and significant as we reflect on some small moments that happened in in my life. I wanted to share with you Exodus chapter 33, a, a brief reading. So the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything that you have asked for. You have found favor in my sight. I will show you my name. And Moses said, show me your glory, I pray." And the Lord said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. In John chapter four, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Monday started out bad. I had a, a cavity. Now, I am very proud of my teeth and, and general oral hygiene. I like to brag, but but there was a pit of decay, rotting enamel, a moral failure in my tooth brushing. I was there in the dentist chair, and, and, and the dentist cut too much. It took forever, the drilling, the, the shots. This is granted a very first world problem. I got home with my mouth all nova came up and and both children were there because it was a teacher work day. I didn't know what to do. Eventually, God's grace came into my house as Ari Penny showed up. She she started doing some yard work and 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 I thought it was a great idea for the children to join me So we all went out together to pick up sticks. The, The children fought. I yelled. I sent them to their room, which gave them what they wanted originally. And eventually, as the day went on, God spoke to me and reminded me that there is goodness in simple work. Tuesday, things got worse. We woke up late, early, well, early Tuesday morning with one of our children having a stomach bug. Now, this is going to shock you all, but but I don't handle sickness that well. So here I am in the early morning light, and I'm panicking. I wouldn't even go into their room. Yvonne's last words be- to me before she went off to work was, Now, they're really not feeling good. Can-, can you baby them a bit? She leaves, and-, and I go to the door of their room. I don't even enter into it. I stand at the door with it barely cracked, and I yell, Do you need anything? And then I start throwing some crackers at them. All Tuesday, there was this growing feeling the writing on the wall, things are getting bad. We we might be spending a, a couple of weeks inside inside quarantined. Now we had been kind of seeing that happening. We, we weren't going crazy, but but we might have bought an extra can of beans every now and again at the store over these last couple of weeks, trying to be ready. This is how epidemiologists tell you to deal with pandemics. The, the virus can't spread if you're not around other people. And it's better to overreact a little bit now than to underreact and have a much, much more severe problem later. A friend of mine is actually at a, a pretty large and influential church in another town. And he, he has doctors and lawyers and CEOs on his board. And they were having a meeting earlier in the week to plan, and and one board member expressed this very legitimate frustration at everything that's happening and said, this is all going to blow over and not be a big deal. And another board member who, who just happened to be the vice president of the local hospital spoke up and said, it might, but what if it doesn't? What if all this doesn't blow over? Wouldn't it be better to err on the side of grace? Wednesday night. I'm gonna come back to Wednesday morning because it's interesting in hindsight how in those moments on Wednesday morning, God's presence laid the foundation for what was next. So so Wednesday night, the, the rumbling started. I was tired and a little anxious. The first tremor came that afternoon as Wake County Schools canceled all of the field trips that they had planned. We in the ward household had, had several things coming up with our kids and we had to to get out our calendars and figure things out. We'd gone to bed early, and I was I was there watching the ACC tournament, Syracuse whooping up on UNC. And there was this little blip at the bottom of the screen, NBA suspend season. It didn't really register. I had been thinking about maybe staying up later that night and watching the Pelicans play. I feel this great connection with Zion Williams. You see, he went to Duke, and, and I went to Duke. He's this phenomenon of athletic power and dominance on the basketball court. And I, uh, I went to Duke. The, the game started at 10.30 and I was already half asleep and it, it didn't really register. And then there was a news break. The, 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 the role was playing with the players standing around in their warm-up gear. And, and all of the fans were starting to be ushered out of the arena. And I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is serious. Thursday and and Friday kind of were a blur of weirdness and activity. They were days of meetings and news and events. The ACC tournament was canceled. March Madness was canceled. Colleges were canceled. Travel bans were extended and then lifted and then clarified. Wake County Public Schools started canceling all sporting events. Flattening the curve started trending on Twitter. The, The idea is that it's... Not even really the fatality rate that's really the greatest danger in these pandemics. That's tragic and that's concerning as that is. It's it's really when too many people get sick all at once. And then the area's medical capacity is overtaxed. So even when it's not those non-serious cases get worse and worse and worse and you have this precipitous spike and then, then a crash. So what public health people are really trying to do is keep that spike from happening even if that means that the annoyance and the, the trouble of all this lasts a little bit longer. In the midst of this, I was, I was dealing with this, this gut reaction that, isn't this kind of like the flu? And I started reading and found out, no, it's actually not. The flu has an estimated 1 billion cases worldwide. Here in the United States, it ranges from 9 to 45 million. Of those billion cases, about 0.1% are fatal. That's pretty consistent year on year. The fatality rate for for this thing seems to be holding at 3%, which is 20 to 30 times more deadly. And, And it could possibly come down, but it hasn't so far as it's gone from country to country. And then there's some really good reasons for that fatality rate not coming down. For the flu, we have vaccines and antiviral treatments. We have immunity inside of us because of we've had the flu before. Coronavirus is believed to be twice as contagious. You know, the flu usually passes from one person to one person. COVID-19 seems to pass from one person to two or, or even three people at a time. But maybe the most worrying thing in this whole is the unknown. We have decade upon decade of flu research. We, we know where the flu starts and we know how it moves and we know where it's going to show up and how long a period of time it's going to last. Right now, we got nothing. So it's dangerous to compare. All of this is happening in my head on Thursday. It's rolling around, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. Then the UNC bishop comes out and, and recommends that all their churches take a couple of weeks off, not just from services, but, but even from being in the same room. You can't be, uh, unless you can be six feet apart from each other and, and have bathed in Perel. Friday was spent nervous, waiting, uncertain, trying to make plans, trying to, to imagine and read the tea leaves of what Wake County Public School was going to do. And so here I am on those days reading these articles and trying to educate myself on the best public health practices and piece something together about epidemiology. And I'm all over the place Uh, on the phone with some people and and they're like, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm telling them, no, you don't understand. The world is on fire. And I'm on the phone with other people who are really freaking out. And I'm like, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this going back and forth with the stewards and the trustees about what we need to do and who needs to know. We had some meetings with people who were concerned about the church and had these great ideas on moving us uh, forward. and, And internally, I'm a basket case. Within me is this growing anxiety and tension, trying to process and decide. So it was 10.30 or 11 on Thursday evening. I just finished up the newsletter article and And hoped and it was gonna help it wasn't helping me I was all hopped up on adrenaline and other stress hormones and I closed my computer to pray for a few minutes and the words from a friend came to a mind he he said this all won't matter in a few months, we're all gonna have moved on toilet paper will be on the shelves and it was right there in that place of of nervous anxiety and uncertainty that I was reminded of what happened on Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning, we had a pastor's meeting for, for the area's Nazarene's pastors. and We were gathered around a table sharing thy kingdom come stories. This year at Mission Advance Conference, we're, that's going to be the theme we're going to share about how we have seen God's kingdom spark and, and grow around us. I shared about people in our congregation who are turning coffee shops into ministry centers by loving and praying with the staff. Uh, about people who are spending their time caring for strangers in senior living facilities. About about people who in our church just show up and said, "I think I thought you you could use some help with your bushes and yard work." Another pastor shared uh, about the ebb and flow of worship leaders. Sometimes he he said, it's just me and a YouTube clip with the ads playing before. But then very recently, a 16-year-old came up and said, I think God is leading me. And she started taking over the planning. Eventually, someone else was there with musical talents. They stepped up. A guitar appeared one Sunday. Someone grabbed an egg shaker. And now there are these teens and this team that is diving in to make the sound better, to make worship grow. He said, it's crazy and chaotic. But it's so exciting to see the way that God moves in unexpected ways to bring up people. Another pastor shared of her kingdom moment. It began back at the end of November when she got a call on a Sunday morning. We walked in to find our baby unresponsive and we're on the way to the emergency room. The next three days were spent in the pediatric ICU. The moment came when the doctor said, there's nothing more we can do. The parents looked at their pastor and they said, we want you to baptize him. A few moments and frantic calls, they, they found a photographer and she came in. The, finally, the moment came and all the cords were unhooked and they baptized him right there. She said he died a few hours later. But I have these haunting pictures I can't share them at the district assembly. They're too painful and they're powerful. Another pastor spoke up softly. Those pictures are too holy, like the face of God. You can't look at them. At this point, we're all in tears, but but she had more to share. For, for that story that began in such tragedy went on, this family in the midst of this unspeakable and all too off-common situation, they had invited some friends to come to church. This new couple had had been there just a couple of weeks, and and, and they casually mentioned to another couple of the church that they were had this big anniversary coming up, and they invited them. Uh, they were going to receive their five-year pin from AA. Now, alcoholics anonymous mar- marks the, the seasons of life as, as you go on without uh, uh, being abstaining and being you know admitting you're an alcoholic and going to meetings and and they have these these times of celebration. So here you had two people, the two families that didn't really know each other in this powerful moment of vulnerability and connection and the kingdom. And we were all sitting around the table at Panera, amazed at this God that comes in such surprising ways. And we felt the spirit around us. I left there and I was on my way to the hospital. I got a call from Gary Naron letting me know about the Wednesday prayer meeting that he had been at. He said, Pastor, I just want to let you know that God showed up this morning. We were praying and the spirit moved upon us. I said, I don't know how, how God could have been there because God was clearly with us or at Panera. I got to the hospital. Like some of you, I'd been worried about Harold and praying for him all week. Sitting in that room, all I could think about were the complications that could happen. Here's an 89-year-old man getting stints in his heart. It'd be one thing if it was me, old and bitter, angry at the world, but this is Harold. He's so sweet and kind. I'm, I'm sitting there trying to talk with him about confessing his st- sins and and stumbling around the seriousness of all this. He, he, he did his little chuckle, and then, and then he got serious. And he looked me right in the eye, and he said, Pastor, I hear what you're trying to say, but it's going to be okay. I trust the Lord, and it's going to be okay. Perfect love. Casts out fear. We might not have a church for a couple weeks, but it's going to be okay. Some of us will probably get this coronavirus, but it's going to be okay. And even if something worse happens, and we as a church experience loss, well, we trust in the Lord, and it's going to be okay. And when we see the kingdom of God sprouting around us in the most surprising places, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and even right here on Facebook, we will dance and sing because we have trusted in the Lord and it's going to be okay. Let us pray. And now, O Christ, we pray that your spirit would be upon us all. And may in this time of separation our faith grow. And may we trust in you and hear your voice reminding us that it will be okay. And now may the blessings of God be upon you all on this day of Sunday rest. Our text today is drawn from Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading in the 38th verse. Hear now the word of the Lord. As he taught, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. He then sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money in the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I should probably begin today by saying that I I like church. Church. I mean, that's not a surprise. Chefs like food, engineers like math, lawyers like making people sad. That that was actually just a joke for Brian Batten, if you're watching. Uh, pastors like church. And and for me personally, I, I kind of like everything about church. I like the, the smells and the bells and the hymns and the pews and the choruses and the robes. I, I, I like church. I wanted to say that up front because in a few minutes, I'm going to say some kind of harsh things about church. And I wanted you to know just at the beginning that I haven't changed teams. I didn't fall and have a concussion. Just be ready. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus tells us to beware of scribes. Literally, he says, look at them for who they really are. Beware of scribes in their long robes, with their great respects, with their seats of honor, because they eat. They devour the houses of widows. This is, is not a, a subtle critique. Jesus isn't giving a fine, detailed reading. He, he's not being acute. Uh, he, he is telling us to, uh, th- these aren't just flawed individuals or misunderstood enemies. There is no shade of gray. There is, there is no complexity of character. There is no nuance of understandings. These people are bad. Because they devour widows. They kill puppies. They bully orphans. They throw paint on the homeless. Scribes are the grinches of the temple, all green and full of fury. After this scathing rebuke, Jesus Jesus kind of steps back and he sits down and he does some people watching. He, He puts his back against the wall and he stares opposite the treasury looking directly at the people he had just called bad. It's almost like he sits in opposition to the mother money-gathering operations of the church. The, the temple treasury at that time was 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 set up with a whole bunch of different offering plates scattered around and when people would bring their offering much like we do today they could they could designate fun and and funds and give it to places they want so you would have the 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 building fund over here and you would have the 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 priest's salary over here and in the back you would have a collection plate for the poor Back in the days before checks and online giving, you, you would bring in your bag of money and you would actually weigh it. The coins would be from all over the Roman Empire or would be in goods and services. You would bring that into the, the temple and they would weigh it to determine the value. And so for someone in the audience, you could, you could actually look out across the temple and see how wealthy people were, see the value of their gifts. The day Jeff Bezos came in was, was quite a spectacle. And there, in the midst of all this activity, Jesus sees a woman, a, a widow, a poor widow. She slips in behind the crowd. She, she drops off a couple of coins, and then she's gone before anyone can give her a receipt. You now, Usually, at this point in the sermons, preachers start talking about the, the widow and the gift that she brings, and the morals start coming fast and easy. It's not how much you give. It's the spirit in which you give. It's not the amount that you donate. It's, it's what's left behind. The true gift is to give everything. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And then those are fine. Those may even be true. It's good to be reminded that, that our disposition, the, the quality of our emotions and the intention that we bring to gifts and to offering and to service and to leadership, it matters. It's good and it's fine. It's just, it's just not what Jesus says. What Jesus says about the woman is actually kind of rather ordinary. I mean, I'll give you, it's a, it's a little counterintuitive. Any third grader out there can tell you that she doesn't put that much in the plate. Pennies don't go as far as they used to. You know, back in my day, we could buy a mule for a nickel and all that. But it doesn't take God in the flesh to realize the immensity of what this widow does. We all know that when people give out of their poverty, they give—we all—okay, can we pause that? Just pause, hit the pause try on that. I need to talk to more. What Jesus says is actually kind of ordinary. I mean, I'll give you, it's a little counterintuitive. Any third grader out there can tell you that what that widow puts in isn't that much. Two pennies don't go as far as they used to but it doesn't take God in the flesh to realize the immensity of her offering. We all know that when people give out of their poverty, when they give all that they have, it means something more. Now on the other side, there's something true that we have seen the, the financial devastation that can happen when people give out of their poverty, when they give too much. We have heard the stories of the poor sending in money to TV preachers, and we, we probably need to add internet preachers since living in glass houses as we are right now. We've heard the stories of those who give gifts to millionaires in fine suits and they can barely pay their bills. And we shake our heads and we, we tisk our tongues. Just a few chapters earlier in Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus is, is confronting some of the religious leaders who were in the midst of taking up an offering. They had a what was called a korban. This was a, a C-O-R-B-A-N, a korban. This was a, an earmarked offering that you kind of left in your checking account. It was for God, but you still got to use it unless like your neighbor needed something and they oh no, that's for God. Geez, dad, I would really love to help you out with, with your back surgery, but... I've got that dedicated for God. Here you had these religious leaders holding back an offering and not giving it to the poor. Here is a widow, someone with no means, with no income, with no social safety net behind her, underneath her. This is the very person who should receive the charity of the church. And she gives all she has. When you look really close at the text, you you might notice that Jesus never gets around to making a moral of her situation. He, he never says that those golden words go and do likewise. He doesn't praise her, her faith or lift her up as an example. He doesn't talk about her motives or her piety. Jesus simply says she gives more. And, and maybe the problem is inflection. We don't have how Jesus said these words. Mark doesn't give us stage directions. We, we don't have his intonation. But I think if you read very closely and listen hard, you might just hear a sigh. Mark's gospel has a lot of inten- intention when he, where he puts certain things, how he orders the account, how he structures his gospel. And so here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is in Jerusalem in the very last week of his life. And he had just finished attacking the scribes. He had just finished critiquing the temple establishment that devoured widows. He he had called out their nice clothes and their long prayers, but they destroyed the very thing they were supposed to protect. And right as he finishes that critique, guess who walks right in the back door? A widow, giving everything she has. I think we have a picture here of a widow that is literally buying into a system that will use her up, that will devour her whole, and that will toss her aside. She gives everything so that the scribes, though those with their long robes, can walk around proud. She walks away with nothing while they walk into great respect. She goes back to her humble home while they go to that seat of honor at the banquet. And if we're honest, we know that all too often the church does that. That's the way the church works. Pastors with the long prayers, the the bankers with the big checks, the scholars with the lengthy titles, all of those get honored and celebrated all the while the widows with nothing are used up and ignored. That's not the way it was supposed to be. That's not the way God had set things up. Think with me back to the Ten Commandments. Those, those rules given in the Old Testament are, are structured to give us how we are to take care of each other. I know when you're first reading through the Ten Commandments, all you can think about is, wow, what a drag. You mean I can't kill anybody and curse and covet anymore? Like, where's the fun in life? But the, the, the good thing is that if you start thinking about it for a bit, you start realizing that if your neighbors, they stop killing and cursing and coveting, then, then maybe you won't have to do it either. God intended this kingdom that we inhabit to be a place of mutual support and care. We are not isolated individuals clamoring to get ahead and stay afloat. We are a community, a group of people gathered in the mission of love and care. We are a church that cannot love our God unless we love our neighbors. We cannot fulfill the commandments without being intentionally oriented to the poor and the estranged, to the hurting and the orphan, to the widow and the immigrant. And yes, we are people who sometimes get it wrong. We, we set up these hurtful and destructive, these devouring distinctions. We, we draw these lines in the sand and say, you are in and you are out. You are good and you are bad. You are fine, but, but you over there, you need to change. We set up protectionistic policies. We we want to be seen in those fine robes. We want to lift up those long prayers. We want to be honored at the exclusive tables. We want to be safe. To be protected. To put the needs of me and mine above the needs of you and yours. And so what if there isn't enough toilet paper to go around? I'm okay. You know what's really ironic about all that? All of those efforts that we have to to protect and secure, to, to hold on and make ourselves great, it all comes not from a place of power, but from a place of hurt. Not from a place of glory, but from a place of shame, of worry and anxiety. And ironically, it doesn't matter how much you acquire and how much you get and how lofty you become, because you're never going to fill that void. In fact, the only way to get past that hurt and shame that is at the heart of that quest to secure and acquire is to be honest. It's to say, hey, you know what? We are all broken. Ain't none of us going to get this together. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So maybe this story is a cautionary tale about how easy it is for all of us to cave into our insecurity, to be seduced by the cultural message of scarcity, to be tempted to always look out for number one, to build up our kingdoms and increase our storehouses and to neglect our neighbors. But maybe if it is that cautionary tale, it's also an invitation for us to leave beside our honest, misguided quests. For us to see ourselves differently. For us to confess our brokenness and to be a people of love and caring that God has called us to be. You know, it's, it's, it's a weird time. The weeks seem to stretch on into months with all the change and uncertainty Fear is as thick as the pollen in the air. And I know, like I think many of us know deep down inside that eventually everything's going to be okay. That, that this too shall pass. That we as a human species have survived plagues and depressions before. But the question is not so much will we get through this, but who we will be in the midst of it. Are we going to be the people that hoard and secure? Are we going to be those who who make sure that we have enough at the expense of all others? Are we going to do everything we can to get to those lofty places? Or are we going to be honest about our brokenness and reckless in our love? Maybe you have to be a little creative with our reckless love. Make sure of standing six feet apart. Let me give you two challenges this week. Not one more thing to add to your to-do list, not one more thing to shoe into your life, but, but two opportunities to be the people who God has called us to be. Number one, if you are a, a part of and attend the Wake Forest Church of the Nazarene, I, I would challenge you at, to reach out to someone you don't know someone who who's in our, our our church that you may not have connected with before glenn just uh, compiled a new email directory and sent it out and it might be as simple as looking in there and and seeing whatever name comes next and and giving them a call and reaching out and saying ask them how they're doing but if two even if you don't attend our church let me challenge you this week to love someone not one of your friends or one of your family members, not somebody that looks like you, but to love someone else, to reach out and care and support, to find out how they're doing, and to share the kingdom that is growing and sprouting around us, that we may see God's blessings and experience the salvation foretold of old. Let us pray. And now, Lord Christ, Would you call to us in your mercy that we may follow you with boldness and share your love? In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.